Welcome to the Filling the Pearl podcast. I'm Greg Ashman, and with me for this episode is Mandy Nathan, the Chief Executive Officer of the Dyslexia Spelled Foundation, Spelled stands for Specific Educational Learning Difficulties, and President of Ausspelled, the Australian Federation of Spelled Associations. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's an it's a absolute pleasure and a bit of an honour to be on your podcast, Greg. I, I feel as though I'm kind of a bit of a minnow amongst quite a lot of uh, high-flying, um, you know, I was going to say sharks, but that's the wrong word. High-flying you know, sharks, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, high-flying. High-flying and very kind and generous sharks, I think, are the ones that, that you interview by, by nature, yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming on. I think people will be really interested in what you've got to say. Um, so, yeah, let's get into it. So I understand um, that you're a qualified teacher. I don't actually know much about your backstory, Mandy, although we've met a few times. Okay. I know that you're, I understand you're a qualified teacher. So um, is that how you started out? Um, what got you into this into this line of work? Uh, well, a kind of more serendipity than design, to be completely honest with you, although strangely I was listening to... Um, I was listening to a, a, an old record um, that my parents made when we were tiny children. I didn't even know that people did that, but it was actually a little kind of record and uh, to send over to my grandparents in England. Um, and one of the questions that my father asked in this rather formal interview uh, that took place on this little record was, what did I want to be when I grew up? And I was six at the time. Um, and I said with great kind of conviction and um, determination that I was going to be a teacher. So, you know, somewhere, you know, way back in, in, in my, um, you know, long-term memory is kind of sewn away this idea that this is what I want to be. I mean, to be honest, my eldest brother said he was going to be an astronaut. My next brother said he was going to be a deep sea diver. And my youngest brother said he was going to be a firefighter and none of them have actually gone down those paths at all. So I'm not sure that it was terribly prophetic. But anyway, there we go. So that was maybe somewhere <laughs> deep down where it started. But I kind of seem to have ended up linking back into education um, throughout my adult life and obviously in my childhood was involved in education. But um uh, when I had finished school and I travelled with a friend around Australia, we ran out of money in um, Cairns. Uh, one of the things that I kind of found was a job working as a governess on a cattle station in the Northern Territory and stayed there for, um, for most of the year, actually, after that time. And um, I would have to say that I was probably an appalling teacher in many ways and I feel kind of sorry for these poor children that I was working with at the time because I had no idea what I was doing. But nonetheless, uh, it was an interesting experience and and um, and made me th kind of think about the fact that as in teaching, I think we do often revert um, to experiences that we had as students perhaps uh, and I know that there was some um, some research that was done uh, years ago um, by somebody looking at how do most people uh, when they're under pressure in a classroom environment respond particularly to behavior management um, and they often revert to um, I guess experiences that they had when they were students in classrooms and teachers who used particular techniques or strategies, uh, you know, they kind of um, move into that sort of territory. But after I had been out on the cattle station, um, I ended up coming back to Western Australia 
and doing psychology um, for four years. So I did an undergraduate degree in psychology and uh, then worked for a number of years in a um, non-government welfare agency working with children in care. And um, my a big part of my role was actually attempting to keep these children uh, in a school setting. So they were scattered around into many different uh, schools. Mostly schools didn't really want them. Uh, they'd often been expelled from, and, and we used to use the term expelled then, we would now say excluded, from many, many schools. Uh, and uh, there was a kind of a, a strong desire on the part of the school often to move them on as quickly as they could. So my role involved attempting to keep these kids in school and working with the teachers, which was a, a kind of an interesting experience on two levels. One, uh, just how <laughs> how uh, much some of the teachers really didn't want to have the students there. And it was, it was quite a, a challenge to in, in encourage them to look at strategies um, to keep them there. I guess the second thing that was really obvious, it was most of these children really struggled with literacy and numeracy and didn't want to be there because they couldn't do 90% of what was being asked of them and felt humiliated and frustrated by that experience. And, and I guess the other thing was that in, in many cases, um, the students had had so many negative experiences as they'd been through school <laughs> that I could really understand and sympathise with them as to why they didn't want to be there. Um, so it was a really interesting experience from my perspective because I was coming into this not really knowing a great deal about um, you know, why would you have 14, 15-year-olds there who couldn't read and write? And it seemed quite surprising to me. And also just the kind of reaction from the teaching staff. The other thing that I got a lot at that time was, are you a teacher? And uh, when I said no, I was a psychologist, um, there would often... I guess, be a reaction that suggested that, well, therefore, I didn't know what I was talking about, which on one level was completely fair enough. Uh, so what that actually encouraged me to do was go back and do teaching. So I did um, an education degree. I um, found that a very interesting experience in that having come from psychology and a very kind of science-oriented degree to going into an education degree right, I think, in the absolute heartland of uh, whole language. I was constantly amazed by the lack of any expectation of me in terms of um, supporting what I was claiming to be the case. In fact, at times there was active, uh, I guess, discouragement of ever referring to any papers or research that have been done because the sole kind of aim of this degree was to try to get me to establish my own educational philosophy even though I kept suggesting to people I didn't really want to do that I was actually there to learn <laughs> about education and the delivery of instruction and how best to uh, get children um, learning and, and to be successful and all I kept hearing about was what is my philosophy. So it was a very interesting experience for me in terms of how the degree was taught, how I was um, managed as a student uh, and how little, I'll be honest, I learned. Um, and it was, a, it was quite a frustrating experience. But that's, I guess, how I came into teaching. 
and then moved into, I suppose, educational psychology, where my interest area uh, and research area was very much on those students who were not making it, who were struggling, who were in the programs that had been set up for students all around the state, and that's what I actually did my master's on, was looking at um, how would they run, what, what was the goals of the of the programs, um, why were these kids in these special schools? Uh, well, they weren't special schools, but they were programs that were um, off-site um, from the schools, uh, run by very well-meaning and um, highly motivated teachers who generally burnt out very quickly, um, and and seeing not much progress on the on the part of the kids. So that's kind of my very circuitous route into. Um, into into the field of education via psychology and since then um, kind of cutting a very long story short I suppose I've just always worked in in those two fields combined the psychology um, field and the um, learning teaching and particularly literacy development uh, field alongside actually a sort of growing awareness and interest and um, study of language development. So there you are, in a, in a bit of a nutshell, I'm not sure. <laughs> That's kind of where I've been and where I've come from. That's really interesting. I have a, I have a lot of sympathy for um, students um, who get to the age of 14 and 15 and they can't read and they, they, they can't do basic numeracy and we're throwing them into a classroom for hours every day where that's that's being they're being confronted by that and i i then i i understand why people uh, suggest well wouldn't these kids be better off out working or learning a trade or something and i do accept at that point if they've got to that point that might be the the better option but like you i wonder why they've got to the age of 14 or 15 and we've mm. failed them to the extent that they can't like what what percentage of kids would have a cognitive impairment that mean that they actually can't read? Oh, it would be tiny. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're talking a tiny percentage of kids. Um, and look, realistically, I've certainly been in schools and worked with some teachers in uh, schools for children who have an intellectual disability, and the children are actually reading more accurately and and fluently than children in mainstream schools. Now, they, they certainly hit a ceiling in terms of comprehension, but their ability to be to be taught how to read um, is is actually beyond that of some of the. When I say their ability, I mean the the success rate that they achieve can yeah. be at times better than what we see in kind of mainstream schooling. So that's a, a, a massive indictment. I mean, that is terrifying in, in terms of the implications that that has. And I think it's also um, terrifying in terms of just those number of kids that are out there who actually could be reading well and they're 14 and they've missed what is just a, 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 an extraordinary volume of um, learning over the previous sort of seven or eight years. And this is one of the really major issues that we face when we are working with these 14 and 15 year olds. And certainly when I was working at the very first um, place that I did work, which was a, uh, a children's home. And um, I, I reached a point where I actually discussed with the people that ran the organization, let's actually keep these kids 
um, back here for a term before we send them into school and try to teach them to read. Um, and that was, again, a very interesting exercise for me because everybody, the advice everyone kept giving me uh, was, look, these kids will be interested in motorbikes or, um, uh, I don't know, you know, kind of some kind of sport, soccer Wrestling. or football. So, yeah, find them magazines and books about that and use those to teach them how to read. And for me, I kept thinking, well, this doesn't actually make sense to me. There's a lack of logic in the idea that suddenly at 14, by presenting them with a motorcycle magazine, we're miraculously going to achieve reading levels when the kids have been at school maybe a bit off and on, have to admit, but they've been there for sort of seven and eight years and yet you know, nobody's had any success. What we do know, and this is the biggest and the most frustrating part of it, is if you've got a 14-year-old and you do teach them how to read accurately, fluently, and we actually there uh, kind of stumbled upon um, direct instruction uh, programs from the US that were yep. sort of appearing around the time, and we, we took these uh, manuals and we started setting up in one of the little cottages on this property um, and a, a direct instruction little program. None of us really knew what we were doing. I have to say we weren't, you know, we certainly weren't experts. I, I certainly wasn't a teacher at that point. But we started seeing quite dramatic improvement and success and the kids were really proud of what they were achieving and it was quite an extraordinary thing to witness. The problem was that they had missed so much school that their actual vocabularies were really poor. They're, um, you know, cognitively, these kids are absolutely fine, but language-wise, they had failed to develop a whole lot of the vocabulary we only get through books. They had failed to, I guess, get all of that sort of general background knowledge and, and topic-specific knowledge. So they were at a really major disadvantage and you know I know you and I have talked often about cognitive load well for them not having that background knowledge not having the vocabulary meant they were consistently under a, a kind of higher level of pressure much more dependent on working memory in the classroom um, it was a much bigger struggle for them many of them were pretty anxious kids anyway um, and so that added to the poor working memory and, and the additional cognitive load. And so it was this kind of vicious cycle. So, yes, we can still teach a 14, 15-year-old how to read, but, you know, they have missed a lot of stuff. So it's actually really very frustrating that that we're only getting to that then. Okay. Well, I, I, I think I agree with that. And um, I, I think we, we, we all agree that we probably need to intervene a little bit earlier and we need good ways of, of figuring yeah. out what that looks like. So quick question, how do children learn to read? Okay. Um, and, look, I think probably a lot of the people that listen to your podcast, podcast will be super aware of this in many ways. But there, there, there's two things that I think are important. One is that um, learning to read is not simple. It is not something that you just immerse kids in and they miraculously develop um, reading, although we do know that there are a very small percentage of children who do seem to learn um, almost as if by magic, although what we do kind of appreciate when we really drill down into it is that they are actually almost kind of, um, they are picking up and being, you know, to some extent directed very kind of carefully into understanding how the code works and also they're developing a really strong language base to work from. But mostly what we understand is that 
children who are learning to read um, need to do two things. They need to develop the capacity to read the little squiggles on the page, make sense of them and uh, de decipher them and decode them. But actually it's more than that. At that level, what we're talking about is the capacity to build the neurological pathways that we need to build to do this with high efficiency, with um, to have practised it enough that we've laid down neurological pathways that allow us to actually um, read at a really high level of efficiency, sort of as if by sight, and we would talk about it in that way rather than by sight, but as if by sight, in that this has become a very efficient and automatic process. Um, so this ability to actually um, read the letters, the letter strings on the page, put them together at really high speed, allowing a student or child to actually take meaning from those um, those graphemes or those letters, those symbols that we use to represent all of the sounds in English and to read them accurately, efficiently and fluently is one part of learning how to read. And this is one of the most important parts that we need to get right, right early on. But I'm absolutely not suggesting, and I don't think anyone who really understands how kids learn to read would ever suggest that this is all we care about, that the idea is you've just got to teach kids how to decode um, and how to make sense of that code. And then beyond that, how to become fluent and efficient in reading that code. Alongside that, um, we absolutely must be continuing to work with children to develop um, an understanding of language. So um, you know, as I know that you've talked about um, on your podcast with various people, the simple view of reading, the idea that we have this kind of, um, uh, we have a, a combination um, and it's the, a product of the capacity to read words fluently and accurately and the capacity to understand the words and the content that is on that page. Um, and this combines to allow us to comprehend that material, to read with comprehension. So the two things, children learn to read by being taught the letter-sound relationships that underpin our English orthography or our English written system. Um, as they do in any language where it's an alphabetic system of language and they're having to learn the particular code. And alongside that, they gradually develop more and more knowledge about the world they live in. They get um, a, a much more robust, semantic, long-term memory. So they have lots of words to draw on. They're building more and more kind of um, complicated schemas that provide them with all that rich background information that allows them to kind of read behind the words, um, make connections with information that they've already stored away, experiences that they've already had, um, and an awareness of the world that they live in, which allows them to make sense of whether it's a story that they're reading, um, a piece of informational text, a piece of persuasive text, all of these different things. It's the same process that's taking place, this combination of being able to read accurately and fluently and a combination and added or not added, <laughs> multiplied by that, you know, in that kind of sense of these two things are, are a product of each other. Um, then what we're getting is that the ability to actually understand and make sense of the, the writing on the page. So this has to be taught explicitly. In order to teach 
children to read accurately and fluently. We are absolutely teaching them the code and we're giving them lots and lots of practice to build that to build that capacity to read accurately, fluently, efficiently with automaticity as if by sight. And we're also explicitly teaching them um, vocabulary, content knowledge, topic-specific knowledge, um, information about how text types work. You know, the, the difference between a story and the narrative and some of the text structure that we would expect to see there to a piece of informational text and what we might like look to see in that. You know, a five-paragraph piece of informational text is very different, different from a five-paragraph story. So there's a lot of knowledge that we teach alongside the um, decoding and um, accuracy and fluency skills that we're wanting students to acquire uh, all of the way through. And that's not just in that kind of foundation year one period. We're still doing that as kids are moving into middle primary. We're still doing it in upper primary. And realistically, we're still doing it in secondary. And it's more than, and I think you've touched on this, but I, I, it's more than just vocabulary, isn't it? I think Dylan William talks about the fact that when you're reading, you're building a situation model. So for me, I, I think of that as a picture. I, I'm not sure everyone pictures it, um, but I, I think of a picture of what's going on and where the different components are and what the, what's happening. And in order to do that, you don't just need to know what words mean. You need to know the, how they relate to each other, how they, uh, what they mean in particular contexts, what things tend to go together. And, and that's quite sophisticated, isn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, I would I would probably call that uh, the building of a mental model. It's the same same kind of thing. Yeah. But the idea that realistically, if you if you have a, a sentence on a on a piece of paper that says, you know, uh, the dog lay on the floor. Well, okay, if you can read those words, um, you can kind of get a bit of a picture of the dog lay on the floor. And so where did the dog lay, lie? The dog lay on the floor, on the floor. You know, who was lying on the floor or what was lying on the floor? The dog. What was the dog doing? Lying on the floor. You can kind of play with all of that. What you're actually doing when you're reading that little sentence is, um, and that that's that kind of surface code level you're able to read those words, you kind of know what they mean and you've got a sense of them. If you were to say, you know, the um, the playful Labrador puppy, um, you know, dozed peacefully on the shag pile carpet or something, then the picture that you're going to start to build in your mind is something different. Now, if you know what a Labrador puppy is, then you're going to get a clear picture. If you're not sure what a Labrador puppy is and you've never heard that term, maybe you're not even going to think about a dog. I mean, you might be thinking about something else or you might be picturing something else. Um, when you say dozing peacefully, I mean, then you've got to understand what dozing means and the shag pile carpet. There's a whole lot of stuff there yeah. that is actually building towards this mental model that we are constructing and we build a mental model by having a knowledge of the surface code b a capacity to delve down into the text base so the meaning behind the text we use our working memory the whole time we're doing that 
to connect to everything that we've got stored away in long-term memory that has anything to do with all of these kind of words and concepts that we're playing with in this one tiny little sentence. And then from there, our whole goal and aim is to build this mental model. So there's a lot going on and you've actually got to be paying attention. You've got to be uh, kind of thinking about it. You've got to have some motivation to even be there. But, yeah, this building of a mental model, the sense of kind of building a picture. Because I could equally say, you know, the glimpse were... Uh, flibbing on the floor so then I could say who was flibbing on the floor and you could say the glimpse and I could say what were the glimpse doing and you could say they were flibbing on the floor but whether you'd be building a mental picture then or whether the mental picture that you're building is actually the same as somebody else's mental picture this is all very dependent on your knowledge yeah I think I might have just confused my Dylan Williams and my Daniel Willingham's there. I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I, I, I think you actually did because I think that's way more Daniel Willingham. I yeah. kind of was a bit surprised that that was something that yeah. Dylan Williams said. Yeah, but yeah. good on him. No, no, I think no, that's uh, that's uh, that's Daniel Willingham. Sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, in terms of you mentioned fluency. Now, in my area, uh, well, science. I, uh, sorry, maths. I suppose my area is maths and science, but in maths. Um, Fluency kind of, I, I get the impression it's kind of looked down on. So you get a lot of people saying uh, understanding must come before procedural um, knowledge and that they will sort of, uh, I mean, it's part of the logic behind what's happening to the um, pushing back of um, linear functions in the, in the proposed draft of car and maths curriculum. And I was talking to my class today and we were reviewing uh, index laws for, for indices uh, in maths and um, I was saying, look, I can go through and explain where these laws come from and why, why they're out. I can prove them. I can give examples. But that's not what we're looking at today. You really need to have these automated. You need to be able to apply them fluently. And in doing so, and the research is quite clear on this. I mean, if you look at, um, uh, I think it's Bethany Riddle-Johnson and John Starr's paper from 2015. I think I've got that right. I might have it wrong. Um, that by automating those things, by being able to do those things automatically, you're freeing up um, mm. working memory to be able to pay attention to the the, uh, the conceptual issues in the problem. So it's not at odds with the goal of understanding by developing fluency in the procedures. Is that analogous to developing fluency in decoding? And if so, is it looked down on for the same sort of reasons, like a misconception about understanding having to come first? Um, oh, that, that's that's kind of a big question. Um, in many ways, I guess what I would think is that I don't know that fluency is looked down on. What I think sometimes is talked about erroneously is this concept of barking at print so this is a phrase I hate and I hear it every now and then and people will just say they're just barking at print and what they're saying there is that the kids are able to read accurately that they don't understand and that it's way more important to understand than it is to be able to read accurately now I guess most definitions of fluency in reading would suggest that if you're going to say that you're a fluent reader, what it actually would, or if I was saying I thought that a student had achieved reading fluency, that they, what I would be meaning by that is not that they could just read fast, but that they could read accurately, effortlessly, with comprehension and at a reasonable rate. And I would actually want all those four things in place before I would actually describe them as a fluent reader. So... 
to some extent, it's about that automaticity. It's about that effortlessness. Um, and it's about the fact that exactly as you say, what that does is it frees the child up for paying attention to the content of what they're reading. Um, it's so vitally important that a student is able to do this effortlessly um, and accurately. And the only way they get to read accurately and effortlessly and with fluency is through practice um, and with through building those kind of neural pathways. I mean, there is an awful lot of evidence that shows kind of neurologically that what we're kind of gradually building is these pathways that sort of go right from the, the sort of frontal um, cortex right through to the, um, you know, the anterior cortex. And we're looking at these pathways that have built up over lots and lots of practice of connecting the letters and the letter strings with the sounds that we make and to the point that it becomes so automatic and you can actually see these really strong neural pathways that are there. And when you kind of think about how long people have read, it hasn't actually been for that long and in not, you know, in, in the history of people. And even, even not that long ago, there was anyone who could read was almost considered to be magic. You know, yeah. the idea that you could look at these squiggles on a page and somehow take some information that one person had given you on these squiggles and go over and say something to somebody else, having not spoken a word, and yet you somehow knew what that person had been saying it it was really quite people were frightened of it people kind of saw it as this magical extraordinary thing and in some ways it kind of is but it has taken and you know I think Stanislas Dehaene has done a, a wonderful job of kind of talking about what is happening new, neurologically and how we are gradually kind of building these pathways and using parts of the brain that were designed to do other things when we are learning to read because it is kind of relatively recent um, you know in terms of our behavior it's a it's a it's a complicated process that is relying, as I say, on these other parts of the brain using this neuronal recycling, as it's described as, to do quite a complicated task. But once you've mastered it, um, you know, I guess it's the same as so many things. I, you know, you watch an extraordinary tennis player playing, or a cricket player, or you know, anyone who has remarkable skill, and you know that. Um, uh, they have just practiced so much. I always find it interesting when you watch, uh, you know, any of these elite sports people, they often have their equipment, whether it's a soccer ball or a tennis racket or whatever, and it becomes almost like an extension of their body. They're, they're twirling them, they're playing with them, they're, they're talking, but they've got the soccer ball on their foot that they're sort of weirdly doing things to, and it's so automatic, it's so effortless that it, you know, it, it looks incredibly easy. But for someone who's not an elite sports person, it would be completely, completely out of reach for them to do it. So that's what we mean by fluency. It's absolutely developing this to the point that it is effortless and accurate and gives this student, really, we would expect kids to be accurate and fluent by the end of year three, you know, at the latest, realistically. That leaves them for the entire rest of their primary school and into secondary school to really learn stuff. And we know that from year three on, most vocabulary comes from reading. It doesn't come from speaking. It doesn't come from, you know, oral communication. Most of our 
um, you know, wider vocabulary, which is mostly, you know, all of these words that are, uh, are more of the, the words that we find, slightly more sophisticated words in written texts, are where we get this explosion of vocabulary. And only really children who are doing a lot of reading are getting access to that. So I like the example of, uh, of, it, of reading being magic because um, I, I think the big, and you've alluded to this before, but the, the big misconception that sort of um, really the whole, whole language project was based on was the idea that reading was a natural process and that if you immersed oh. uh, children in print and gave them enough magazines and things that they would want to read around them, they would naturally pick it up. But of course, it's an unnatural process. It's only been around uh, with us for a few thousand years. And as you say, mm. for, for much of that time, people who could do it were, were slightly supernatural. So it wasn't a natural thing. It was a, a supernatural thing to be able yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah, quite scary. Um, so it's really interesting. And and there are still large chunks of the popular, well, communities and cultures where there is still very little reading taking place uh, and you know it's a very different kind of lifestyle the the reality however is that if you're a, a child growing up in Australia if you want uh, doorways not to be slamming in your face uh, as you get to the old end of school and and want some choices with what you're going to do with your life there thereafter um, kids need to learn to read you know and, and it's not just that they need to learn to read they need to have had access to all of that uh, you know extraordinary information and knowledge um, assuming they're in a school that's actually teaching them stuff um, they, then uh, you know and that's that that to be honest is a whole another kind of direction of conversation yeah. there, there, there are way too many schools that are not teaching really rich content knowledge and and knowledge that allows kids to kind of build on the knowledge that they you know that, that there's not this kind of cumulative impact of building so that we are getting kids who are drilling down into content at a really quite sophisticated level rather than you know the the kind of rather glib discussions around uh discovery learning and you know projects that no go nowhere and you know there, there's a a lot of stuff that still is happening there are some schools that are doing amazing things you know um as you as you well know and and you you know you can sort of see the difference um i think that's important one thing i'd like to just ask you about because I've I've heard you talk about this before. Um, is the role of um, morphology and etymology in reading instruction? Because I'm not sure I'm not sure that that is as well understood maybe as no. uh, the role of initial decoding and maybe even vocabulary instruction. So okay, I think I mean there are a couple of things. One time, one thing I think is that sometimes we talk about the you know the two kind of uh, types of knowledge and language and capabilities and so on and, um, you know, Geary's kind of um, approach, the idea that some things are primary and some things are secondary and all, all of those sorts of things. I kind of tend to think it's it's also a bit of on a continuum in that, that something like vocabulary, yes, if children are growing up in a household 
that is an English-speaking household uh, in that critical period of development in those, you know, very early years, kind of six months to two and a half in particular, which is considered a, a really important critical period for language development. But, you know, all, all periods are important. But what, what they, they have a, an easier time of um, acquiring that language, there's no doubt. You know, if you try to acquire a language when you're 19 and 20 from somewhere else, we're not, we're not built, you know, there's not a kind of built-in capacity to keep on learning more and more languages. You know, once you've kind of got that first one, then unless you move very quickly with that second one, it's, it's not going to come easily. So, um, but also... When you watch a parent with their child uh, in the very first few years of life, there's a lot of very explicit teaching going on. It, it's not that sometimes people talk about language as though it just miraculously happens. Um, actually, you know, you watch a parent with their child um, and they will be repeating the same word. They'll be saying it carefully. They'll be getting their child to say the word there's lots of repetition. There's lots of actually very explicit teaching in very small chunks. You know, if you kind of look at what the, the theory around explicit instruction is, we'll see that there's lots of really rich, explicit teaching going on um, that parents are kind of guiding their children. You know, and we, we kind of know that one of the human capacities that uh, exists that doesn't exist for other animals is that that capacity for shared attention um, and, and that shared attention allows children to learn a lot um, in other words you know that children respond to gesture like pointing you know th those kinds of things which other animals don't so this is quite unique to humans and what it does is it allow it allows humans to be taught a lot of stuff quite quickly. Um, it, it actually also means they can be taught a lot of bad stuff quite quickly too, as in when I say bad, incorrect, you know, like they can be. It's one of the reasons why we see kind of cults and, um, you know, all the conspiracy theories take off in the way they do. You can direct people in such a way that they'll pick up these new ideas and thoughts very quickly. So this kind of shared attention, um, it does allow for quite quick teaching and you'll see parents who are doing a lot of that in the early years of a child's kind of development and in some cases perhaps not so much. So, you know, obviously we see kids arriving in the school, in the classroom with very different levels. But then we need some more of this very explicit teaching. We need this to continue. This is not something that stops. So, vocabulary continues to need to be taught quite explicitly. I mean, the number of times I've heard a fabulous word and thought, oh, I must remember that. That's such a great word. If I don't write it down or kind of do something to commit it to memory, there's no way I'm just going to remember that. I, I need to have that kind of exposure to a practice with it, use it, if I'm actually going to add it into my long-term memory. So, I think vocabulary is critically important to be taught quite explicitly. There's a lot of information around in terms of how that is best done. You know, I think um, Isabel Beck's work and colleagues, I mean, there's some fantastic stuff around in terms of explicit, careful teaching of vocabulary, um, particularly if it's done as part of text learning and in context. I think that you, you can teach very explicitly and build that vocabulary. Um, but alongside that, I forgot, what was the other part of your question? Um, oh, morphology, morphology and etymology. Yeah. So, so 
when we talk about um, English, it's important to remember that English is what is considered to be a morphophonemic language. It is not it is not just a phonemic language in that it is considered to be morphophonemic, um, meaning that it's not just about letter sound relationships, it's also about the units of meaning. And this is particularly the case because we have such a massive input of kind of Latin and Greek in our language. I mean, English is a very, it's referred to sometimes as a very promiscuous language in that it's actually just borrowed, taken, absorbed words from all over and brought all their spelling patterns with it. But but both Latin and Greek are very strong kind of morphemic languages. Um, and so what we see in all of that Latin, um, particularly, I guess, in middle and upper primary and into secondary school and into just about every one of the subject areas, we see so much Latin and Greek. And these are heavily morphemic. And um, what that kind of means is that from a very early age, when children start talking about, I mean, st children start using inflectional morphemes, which are the morphemes that we add to the end of um, words, uh, to change their tense meaning or degree. So you might have one cat, two cats, and the S is a morpheme, as is cat. Um, and then you, you might have, I will kick the ball, and yesterday I kicked the ball. So if you're just talking about a phonemic language, then you're saying that that's kicked, and you'd think you'd write it down as K-I-K-T, which lots of kids do. And uh, initially I'd be saying, that's great. You know, I like the fact that the child is representing each of the sounds they can hear. But quite quickly, we want them to learn about the fact that if we want to represent past tense, we're using this morpheme. It's an inflectional morpheme, ED, represents past tense. Sometimes it sounds like a T, sometimes it sounds like a D, and sometimes it sounds like an ID. So um, it sounds differently. So if we're talking phonemes, you know, it's confusing. But if we're talking about the morphemes, it's very consistent and very clear. So I guess um, morphemes are really important from a very early age because we're talking about those inflectional morphemes, the sort of plurals and tenses and degree, big, bigger, biggest, and so on. And children start using those things in their speech. You know, it's not unusual for a child who's only kind of three or four to say, um, you know, I I looked down the road or something, you know, because yeah. they've heard the ud and, and they're kind of experimenting with it, so which is great. So that kind of morpheme layer um, is really important from early on. And then as they move into middle primary, there's much more of the derivational morphemes, and these are all the morphemes that actually change the meaning of a word or change its function. So you might have, you know, to derive, you know, is a verb, derivation is a noun and so on. So you, you'll have, you know, sometimes the same kind of word can be changed into a, a verb, an adverb, a, you know, an, a noun or an adjective. So it's that kind of process that almost overrides phonemes. So morphemes are really important. And Cathy and Russell has actually just recently done, well, she's done quite a lot of work in this area. She's done some fantastic work around morphology. And kids who are morphologically aware are more likely to have stronger reading comprehension skills and go on actually to have stronger written expression skills. So what we kind of see is some really very positive benefits from knowledge of morphemes. 
If we're so, talking about etymology, oh, do you want no, me to carry on? No, yeah, go on. Sorry. So the etymology side, it's an interesting one because a lot of the etymology is more actually about kind of telling the stories of words. I think kids are often really interested in understanding where a word has come from and, you know, what it kind of means. And so, you know, sometimes it's as simple as things like, you know, why do we spell the word sign, S-I-G-N, in the weird way that we do? And once kids know it's a shortened form of signature, then, you know, they kind of go, okay, that's kind of weirdly interesting. So, you know, there's a whole lot about the history of our language which helps students to understand why it is written the way. So etymology, I think, has a really important part to play in understanding um, where words come from and the stories behind them. But also, you know, if you talk about sort of some of the, the Greek spelling patterns like the CH representing the sound, the, um, you know, the, the silent um, P in so many of the words like psychology and so on, using a Y to represent an it or an I. There are lots of things that we see that are patterns that come from other languages that are useful for students to know. I just would almost think that etymology, it's really interesting, but I'm not, you know, it's not as kind of powerful to me as the morphology, you know, and the and the phoneme knowledge essentially, realistically. Uh, but I love it. I mean, I'm super interested in it, and I actually believe all kids should be taught Latin from around about year three on. <laughs> and I suppose just, things, things like, you know, what's interesting, what happened to these hour and runners and, and why did Cicero become Cicero become Cicero? Yeah. 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 Well, interesting. Stuff. Anyway, um, now tell us about Research Ed Perth. It's on the um, 17th of July, Saturday, the 17th of July. It so. is Saturday, the 17th of July. Very exciting. Um, where it's held, it's going to be held at um, Bob Hawke College again. Um, and Bob Hawke College, for those of you who have not been to Bob Hawke College, is in Subiaco. And it is a. I'd go if they'd school. let me into your state. Well, I think that they will by the 17th. I think you'll be here, Greg. I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. Um, and I reckon by the 17th, all, you know, touch wood, et cetera, I cannot imagine it will still be closed. So so let's just assume you're coming. Um, book those flights. Uh, the um, So, yeah, we, uh, Jim um, Bell is going to speak. He is the new, uh, well, relatively new, I guess, from the start of this year, D Deputy Director General, whose focus is absolutely 100% on student achievement and raising student achievement. So really interesting to hear from him about how, you know, the vision of the department moving forward and how that's actually going to be, um, you know, achieved. Um, Kathy Russell is doing a presentation for us. That that only actually was confirmed this morning, so that's kind of fun. Brilliant. Uh, look, looking, for, <laughs> looking forward to that. So she is actually going to talk on her recent paper that came out earlier this year um, on the just... Uh, you know, absolute kind of um, the evidence that she's kind of gathered on the impact that you can have through explicit instruction in early reading and uh, and even later reading. So she's she's um, talking about some really um, interesting things there. You know, we've got lots of people who are uh, talking from around Perth, and there are a couple of other people hopefully coming from. Over East, Jenny Donovan, um, who you, I know, have interviewed on this show, who is the new CEO. I think she's CEO. Is that the title? I, I should know that. I think so, but yeah. Of, 
of AERO, uh, yeah. the Australian Educational Research Organisation. Um, and she, I think she's a really fascinating person. I, you know, I love listening to her. I certainly saw her speaking at um, uh, the Brighton um, uh, Research Ed and, you know, her kind of, I guess, understanding of the reciprocal nature of research and practice and how what we do, in, what occurs in the classroom can help inform and guide research, but also importantly how research can inform and guide um, classroom practice um, and making that um, accessible, uh, translating it in such a way that it is useful and practical for, for classroom teachers. I think she's going to uh, be really interesting to listen to um, in terms of that work. So, um, yeah, um, we've got some really good people coming, talking, um, and, and lots of other people who I'm looking forward to hearing from. And so, again, as always, I suppose the reason that we're very keen to run Research Ed is that it is, again, it's, it's something that is um, available to teachers and almost any teacher can access it, assuming that they're going to be around because it's on a Saturday, because we keep the price just ludicrously low in many ways, um, just to make sure that as many people can come as possible. It's definitely not designed to make money or anything of that kind. It's really designed to provide access to teachers to come speak to researchers, researchers to talk to teachers and policymakers to be there as part of the mix to kind of listen to these conversations and be part of them um, and understand some of the kind of day-to-day -day, um, pressures and, uh, you know, the kind of what goes on in the classroom really to be reminded of what goes on in the classroom. I think they're great. Looking forward to it. Right. Um, it should be, should be great. Look, one final question from me, uh, which uh, yeah. a variation of which I ask most of my guests, what's the solution to making education more evidence-informed? I, I mean, it's a really interesting question um, and I wish I'd had more time to think about this, but um, I guess for me it is, um, I think it's not about going, it's not, it's not about, it shouldn't be about a battle. You know, this is really, we have such good evidence now. I think, I mean, I realise it's a bit of a kind of chipping away process, but I feel like we have come a really long way in the last decade. I actually genuinely do. I think the conversations that people are having are so much um, more, uh, I don't know, grounded in research. There is so much evidence out there that the conversations that people are having at the grassroots level, the kind of conversations that are taking place in staff rooms, um, the discussions that teachers are having with each other are very different, I think, than they were 15, 20 years ago. I, I you know, even 10 years ago. I think that there's a real kind of energy and enthusiasm for really understanding um, how we should be doing things in a way that's better. My kind of, you know, like on one level, I've kind of come into this from the avenue of kids who are struggling and failing and discovered that actually <laughs> there's so much evidence to show that actually if we get it right for all students, it's exactly the same as what we should be doing for these kids and half the time they're struggling because they haven't had access to really high-quality instruction in the first place. So for me, you know, it's it's I kind of feel like I'm, that if we can get more people out there talking about it, agreeing with it, um, 
I don't want to say fighting the fight because that kind of gets this sense of it's horribly oppositional. I think still a lot of people who are poorly informed and need more information and we need to be getting it out to people. Excellent. So, you know, that, that's a short answer to a, a big question. That's a good answer. It's a good answer. I think that's what we're all about. Listen, it's been yeah. an absolute pleasure chatting to you, Mandy. Um, and hopefully uh, we can pick up the thread. And there's so many questions that I didn't get around to asking you. So hopefully we can we can pick that up again at some point in the future. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was lovely. Thanks. Bye.